unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Tamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. Since independence, the Indian state has grappled with a variety of internal security challenges, insurgencies, terrorist attacks, caste and communal violence, riots, and electoral violence. Their toll has claimed more lives than all of India's five external wars combined. Despite this, we know surprisingly little about the institutions of the state tasked with managing internal security. For instance, how well has India contained violence and preserved order? How have the approaches and capacity of the state evolved to obtain these twin objectives? And what impact does the state's approach have on civil liberties and the quality of democracy? These are three questions that a new book, Internal Security in India, Violence, Order, and the State, takes up. It's an important new volume co-edited by two of the best-known political scientists working on India, Amit Dahuja and Devesh Kapoor. Over 15 chapters, Amit and Devesh bring together some of the best scholars and practitioners working in the field in a book that I predict will have a very, very long shelf life. To talk more about India's internal security, Amit and Devesh joined me on the show today from Washington, D.C. Gentlemen, congrats to you both, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Milan. Thank you so much, Milan, and thank you for such a kind introduction. So, uh, Amit, let me start with you. In the acknowledgments section at the very start of the book, you note that this volume began with the conversation that you and the Vesh had before the pandemic, back in 2018, about India's internal security. And I'm wondering if you can kind of, you know, share with us and our listeners a little bit about that conversation and, you know, how did it lead to the book that you produced today? Yeah, no, thank you. That's, uh, you're, you're right. So it, it actually began with this conversation at, at the India Security Workshop that Devesh hosts. And, you know, uh, you know, I, during our, um, you know, our separate uh, projects, I was actually looking at uh, a violent indicators of, of insurgency violence uh, and drawing these graphs for my class uh, using the South Asia terrorism portal data and began to notice that across the insurgencies, the violence had just begun to dip. Um, and, you know, Devesh uh, was looking at insurgencies uh, in, a, in, a, in a project that he was researching. And so this, these conversations began with a discussion on what, what is really happening to violence in India. And, you know, we had a sense that communal violence, those patterns had begun to shift. So we wanted to, you know, that that's what got us started. And then what I had begun to notice there was that how the military had configured itself to take on uh, insurgencies. And it was a pretty significant, you know, reconfiguration, you know, raising an entire uh, organization with the membership of 75,000 soldiers. Uh, Devesh at that time was looking at the structure of the, the Central Armed Police Forces, and, and how they had been bulking up in terms of numbers over the decades. So both in terms of the story of violence and, and what the state was doing uh, to increase its capacity, that's what the conversation was about. And that's what got us started thinking. But, you know, Milan, you worked with Devish, and you know that he's a force of nature. Um, and, and, you know, to have him, you know, it's because it's one thing to have conversation and have ideas. And it's a completely different thing to take this project through and, and working with Devesh and, and just, you know, his relentlessness, um, you know, has, has brought us to this stage. So I, you know, 
I want to embarrass him a little bit by, by, by definitely noting that. You both note in the outset of the book that you take a very statist view of security production. In other words, you're not really interested in this book so much in kind of political and societal actors, but rather trying to unpack the kind of black box, as it were, of the state and all of its various institutions, right? And in doing that, you kind of note this paradox. You know, on the one hand, law and order under the Constitution is a state subject, right? It is state capitals who have original jurisdiction over questions of law and order. But on the other hand, the enhancement of internal security-related security forces has been concentrated in New Delhi and has arguably served to bolster centralization. I'm wondering if you could just kind of help us explain these two bits uh, of the picture. So, Milan, uh, that's a very nice point. Uh, You might recall that you and I actually had written a paper for a Carnegie volume, I think, in 2014, where we looked at the supply chain of law and order. And, you know, I think it's been noticed not just by us, but by many other commentators, just how much or how little the states invest in law and order. Uh, So, you know, this whole thing of very large vacancies in the police, uh, the district courts, uh, the sort of the expenditure patterns, which are only on wages and salaries, hardly anything on equipment and training and so on and so forth. In many ways, the centralization that has happened is, I think, part of a broader you know, phenomenon. Core public goods and law and order is a core public good constitutionally were entrusted with states, right? Local roads, health, primary health, primary education, right? These are examples. In all of them, the states fail to discharge their core obligations. In all of them, as we know with primary education, you know, Sarva Shikshahabhyan was the one that really put in much more money. In uh, in sort of rural roads, again, a massive central scheme. Drinking water, again, a massive central scheme. Law and order is the same. The centralization has occurred in substantial part because of the abdication of responsibilities of the states to their core constitutional obligations. And over time, for anything, they would ask central forces to be sent over. Now, the more they've relied on the center, they've basically, it's led to the centralization of power and greater concentration of power in the center. That power was not taken by the center. It was given to the center by the states. I mean, it's a, it's a very interesting point you make because at the same time, this abdication you speak of, uh, it coexists with this idea that politicians really care about controlling security forces at the state level, right? Uh, to, to go after their uh, their political opponents, to make sure that that that, that their uh, colleagues and cronies are are protected. So it's it's a bit of a kind of Janus face enterprise, isn't it? On the one hand, abdication 
But then excessive control, perhaps in a way, however, I think is maybe what you're arguing, that's not building state capacity? Absolutely. So, so see, the, the recourse to central forces is done when there is mass violence. You know, public sort of order is under threat. Police is much more controlled by the states for quotidian criminal activities, right? Uh, and that, as your you know wonderful book sort of showed the nexus between politics and criminals, the fact that so many MLAs and MPs have people who have you know this unbelievable number of charges against them ranging from murder and rape. Uh, so what states want to really control is the police, especially when it comes to criminal investigations. When it comes to order, which is large-scale violence, right, on that they rely on central forces. And of course, large-scale violence often breaks down precisely because of the shenanigans of the state governments in multiple ways. So, Devesh, let me just stick with you for a moment, uh, and maybe Amit wants to come in on this as well after. You know, one theme of the introductory chapter that you two have written is that as best as we can measure as sort of social scientists, public violence of all kinds appears to be on the decline, right? So it doesn't matter if it's riots, murders, terrorism, insurgency, all of them point in the same direction, which is downwards. Tell us a little bit about the kind of, you know, dimensions of the data that you've been able to amass, because it's it's a story that I think a lot of people would be surprised to to read, given what they often see in the headlines, for instance. No, I think, you know, it's something that really surprised us, Milan, that in almost every measure of public violence, you see an inverted U-curve. You see an increase from the 60s to about the 90s, and then a decline, right? So this has spanned all the governments. Uh, to add to some of the list which you have, you know, take, take student unrest, take, take labor strife, right? You see, you know, incredible increase from the 60s to the nine to the 80s in the case of both student and labor in fact this goes back almost to the late 50s the first uh, major works of scholarship by american political scientists in the late 50s early 60s you know myron wiener the rudolphs was actually on student you know protests in india surprisingly that had begun by the late 50s. You have the first parliamentary reports on this. And what struck them was not that, you know, there were student protests that happens all over the world, but how much violence accompanied student protests. India really stood out. You know, by the late 80s, student protests were about 10,000 a year. This is official records of which about between a fifth and one fourth were violent. So almost eight to ten every day, which is quite remarkable. And then, you know, last twenty years, huge decline. Uh, you know, 
same thing with sort of labor protests and and and, and violence uh, hijackings you know we don't think about that but there were you know from the 70s to the 90s there were all these hijackings that would occur again it's vanished so assassinations if you remember mrs gandhi rajiv gandhi all of that again that has gone uh something that you see a mirror image of that security force fatalities you see which is there's more violence you bring in security forces they left you know fatalities that also has this inverse u curve uh we're trying to put together you know new data on police firings right because when there's a lot of public violence that's what happens that has also declined so all of these are consistent with this rise and decline of public violence what we don't have in the book and you know i think we are still grappling with that there is no one reason that explains this all you know for instance on student protests one feature we see in higher education much more of higher education is now private so when students are paying a lot of money then actually going on strikes etc does cost you in the pocket right don't pay it doesn't really matter right uh a uh, labor unrest has declined because labor's you know organized labor's power worldwide has declined right so so you know capital's power has sort of increased hijackings have declined because you see it's almost a parallel with what happened to the us after 911 right you see a massive growth in the department of homeland security as airport security now gets centralized under a federal agency same thing happened in india you know airport security was was provided by state police which is not very competent not well trained and it shifted to the central cisf which is a central government entity which was sort of better trained for the specific task of airport security so it's a combination of reasons why we think we observe these patterns uh but i think what we are confident because all of them follow pretty similar patterns we are pretty confident of our of our at least empirical findings okay if i can just come in a little bit on that yeah, so i just want to sort of you know highlight a, a few things here one is that you know these uh you know indicators of violence that we see across the board i mean you know and we know that people who have studied these have looked at these uh, in isolation uh but you know if you look at them take a sort of 30000 feet view and see multiple indicators of violence going down that then begins to have a very profound effect on society and state society relations um and i think that's something we we need to appreciate i'll i'll just give you one example think about electoral violence and you know how much it has plummeted from uh, the 1970s and 80s uh into the 90s you know and 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 what it has done uh you know participation has gone up most importantly if you look at the indian state's efforts to secure the polling station the polling booth uh and what it has allowed you know to you know for when it comes to voters from marginalized 
or subordinate groups, they are now going and voting in large numbers as compared to the time when they went to the polling station, they were just told, go home, your vote has been cast. Today, every polling station has five central police officials who guard it. Uh, you know, so it has it has it has serious implications in that regard. That's you know that's that's one point. Another thing I think which we we need to remember is how sharply different India's experience has been as compared to other developing countries in Africa, in Latin America, where violence has just taken off. It's just those those numbers have just exploded, and in 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 that you know in that respect. Uh, you know, whether when we compare to what's happened in subcontinent, in India's neighborhood, as as well as, you know, to some of the major countries like Nigeria, South Africa, other parts of Africa, Brazil, Mexico, you can see that India's had very serious challenges when it comes to violence. And, you know, the state has been able to uh, overcome some of those uh, those challenges, and so that India's performance in that respect is 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 actually it's it it stands out. So, so, so Amit, could I just kind of follow up on this because you know one big caveat here, and you and you're transparent about this in the in the chapter, is that your focus is really on mass violence, right? And you note that there are some signs of everyday forms of violence that are increasing, right? And maybe you could just say a word about that. What are the kinds of individual or everyday violence that appear to perhaps be rising instead of declining? So so what we actually see is that we sort of make this uh, observation uh, on, on communalism. And what we see actually is that, you know, if you look at the, you know, data on riots, on communal violence, or you look at the incidence of major acts of mass violence, and I'm thinking Nelly, I think 1983, 1984 in, in Delhi, the violence we saw, 1993 in Mumbai, 2002 in Gujarat, those kinds of acts, you know, and, and in general, uh, you know, violence related to riots and ethnic violence has come down. What, and what, what we see today is that when it comes to everyday communalism, we see that this appears more regularly. Um, you know, we don't have systematic data on it. And so we can't claim uh, that, you know, this, uh, this kind of activity is increasing. This data has to be collected for us to make a, uh, any sort of comparison of the type that we've made for other indicators. Um, and, and, and here, the important point in fact, there are two really important things that, that we need to, you know, realize. One is that a lot of what we are seeing is getting amplified because of social media. Uh, you know, incidents happen, videos are produced, sometimes they are real, real, sometimes they are fake, but they travel across the country in no time. And that makes them dangerous. Why? Because they perpetuate fear. Uh, they encourage conflict. And if the state doesn't act swiftly, uh, then there are consequences uh, to, to these kind of videos, uh, you, know, uh, you know, being circulated in society. And, and, and second is this, this notion, this perception of, of, of vigilante groups who 
it you know seem to be able to get away with violence now you know this could be on related to cattle smuggling in north india interfaith marriages the kind of political violence we see in bengal for example um but the fact is that you know if vigilantes are seen to be getting away with violence if there's that level of impunity then the state is beginning to share its monopoly over violence its authority with other actors and we know this uh, from our experience in india and from elsewhere in the world that when states do that when they share this authority they begin to lose legitimacy uh, and that's something that's uh, that 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 we need to keep an eye on uh, as as social scientists uh, you know in terms of you know what you know how are these activities uh, being perceived and what is it doing to the respect uh for the credibility of the state one thing where you see this is of lynching right uh we've seen this undoubtedly increase in this last few years now unlike the mass violence that amit alluded to you know uh delhi 84 nelly godra uh, and post godra in gujarat in 2002 lynching kills a few individuals it doesn't kill people in the hundreds or thousands right now the work in the american south right where you had lynching it shows that lynching is more akin to terrorism terrorism doesn't kill that many people because the whole point of terrorism is to sow widespread fear and so in that sense this type of so what it does is it increases sharply the perception of violence so that's why right it's a sort of performative act in a sense exactly exactly the other area where i think there is a sense of increased violence is around is around gender because of very highly publicized cases uh the very palpable sense of lack of safety like for women in public spaces now here actually you know we cannot make any unequivocal statement because most violence against women occurs in private spaces which is inside the household and as you well know you know it's very very hard to get good at least long term data on that and i think that's the other area where there is clearly at least a perception of uh, of of sort of violence now but i don't think we can have any unequivocal sense of what is the long term trend on that uh, so so the vesh let me just kind of shift the conversation a bit from data to kind of institutions right because the book spends some time going through the institutional framework for internal security in fact many of the chapters are really oriented around that. Uh, you know, one of the key actors clearly is the home ministry, which is the nodal agency for law enforcement. And in your chapter you document a real expansion in the ministry's ambit over the years, particularly when it comes to the explosion in the size of the central armed police forces and other central police organizations. And just give us a taste if you could about how large has this growth been over the decades i mean how significant are the numbers so uh you know the indian states ex- 
uh, after the liberalization of the 90s, the central government, uh, the, the only part that has really seriously expanded is the home ministry. The central armed police forces were roughly about 5,000 in the early mid-50s, about 60,000 around 19, the late 60s, half a million by 1990, and about 1 million now, right? So it's a massive expansion. Uh, you know, even till the late 60s, the ratio of the what are now called the Central Armed Police Forces to uh, the army, the ratio is 1 to 10. Today, it's close to 1 to 1. Uh, now, there is no doubt that this has hugely expanded the ambit and the power of the Home Ministry. Uh, and of course, currently, uh, given the particular relationship between this Home Minister and the Prime Minister, it's even more so. Uh, now, now, it is true that much of this expansion occurred for very specific reasons in reaction to some things that happened. So, for instance, till the 65 war with Pakistan, uh, the borders on, say, uh, in, in many of the states, the borders were actually controlled by the state police. What happened in 65, there, were, there was infiltration in the run of Kutch instead of Gujarat, etc. And slowly, there was a realization that you needed some centralized forces. So that's where you see the expansion of the border security force. After the 62 war with China, this large, you know, you know, 3,000 kilometer plus border with China, it was clear that India needed a force like for that. And that's how you saw the creation of the ITBP. The CISF was created in the late 60s when left front governments came to power in Kerala and West Bengal and refused to protect central installations against attacks by uh, by sort of, sort of sort of you know different forces, so it was created to protect central institutions, and over time its ambit expanded to provide security at airports, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. After the horrific sort of Mumbai attacks uh, on 2611, uh, when it was clear that India's there was a massive intelligence failure, you see the creation of the NIA, the National Intelligence Agency. So you see that after, you know, each of these, you see a new force created for particular purposes and a gradual expansion. But I think this larger thing, what does it all amount to when you have such, so many forces now under a home ministry, such centralization of power, of coercive power in one ministry, uh, you know, that raises also many troubling questions.
Hey, Grant the Masha listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Masha, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. Um, could I just ask a kind of corollary here? Uh, you know, there's also been at least a widespread perception and, and some data to back it up that post-2014 and the start of this government, uh, the central government has relied more intensively, shall we say, on investigative agencies under their purview to an extent that perhaps we haven't seen before, right? What defenders of this government would say in response is, look, these agencies, Central Bureau of Investigation, Enforcement Directed, others which are broadly under the law enforcement ambit, they've always been controlled by the political executive, right? For instance, the CBI was used to be known as the Congress Bureau of Investigation when the Congress is in power. There's really nothing new here. Do you detect in anything you've researched, data you've seen, that these agencies are being used in a new or different way in the past eight or nine years? Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I'm, before I come to this question, if I may just add a couple points to what Devesh said, which I think which are also important to highlight. You know, Devesh pointed out, for example, you know, example about the, you know, the expansion of the the forces under the home ministry. The two really interesting aspects to it. You know, if you look at state employment in general, this is this expansion is happening at the same time when across uh, di- you know different. Uh, areas, different government departments, public sector employment is actually shrinking in India. And and second, you know, also remember that because these are home ministry troops, oftentimes, with the exception of Assam rifles, they're being led by IPS officers in many instances. And that has actually increased the clout of the Indian police service, the, the you know, the National Guard are there. Uh, so it's it's it it has had a you know very profound impact on the the state machinery in that respect. Um, Milan, let me let me just start by saying that you know if you look at the government's record over a period of time in terms of how these agencies like the Central Bureau of Investigation or Enforcement Directorate have been used, they've they've always been used. Um, what is different now as compared you know to to earlier times is perhaps that the use has become more energetic and widespread so for example uh, you know we 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 provide some data on this so if you compare the current government's uh, record to the last government which is the the UPA government uh, in its second stint between 2009 and 14 and if you look at the ratio of number of cases filed against opposition leaders or their families and as compared to uh, you know the, the cases filed against people from your own party the governing that that ratio of opposition party to governing party was 3 to 1 under upa2 whereas under the bjp government it's gone up to for to you know 15 to 1 so 15 uh, so there is a very substantial increase uh, and this then you know raises two interesting questions from our perspective. Uh, 
One is this aspect, look, if you look at the Central Bureau of Investigation and the and the Enforcement Directorate, these are, you know, prestigious organizations. Um, people who, who serve in these organizations actually take a lot of pride. Uh, you know, there is a particular status attached to serving in these uh, in these organizations. And, you know, their credibility rests on their neutrality. Uh, and and once that neutrality or the perception of neutrality begins to get eroded, then you know that impacts the the prestige of of prestige of these organizations and the talent you can attract to these organizations. And and that's something that we we need to be uh, uh, careful about when we think about the effectiveness of the Indian state. I mean, it's the same kind of thing, a uh, problem that, that the Department of Justice uh, faces in the United States. You know, if the perception is that it's targeting a former president for political reasons, uh, whatever the reasons may be, uh, you know, that impacts its, uh, its, its credibility because its neutrality has been questioned. So this is a difficult time, and, uh, you know, especially given political polarization, uh, for for organizations that find themselves in in this tug of war, the second aspect of this is it has a very serious implication for federal relations in India, and that's a delicate matter. Uh, opposition parties are in power in at the state level, and you know if opposition politicians are being targeted, uh, then that relationship between the center and the state that the functionality, its effectiveness, that comes under question. States begin to resist the center's uh, push. And, um, you know, there there is tension in that relationship. And then how do you solve serious problems related to internal security where center state coordination is required? Um, You know, whether it's criminal investigations, whether it's issues of terrorism, insurgencies, uh, you need center state coordination for that for those problems to be uh, solved or to be addressed and uh, you know if that that relationship is impacted adversely uh, because of use of these central agencies then that has that has implications so so one of the things is that see uh, two of the investigative agencies the cbi actually is not under the home ministry as you know it's under the Department of Personnel and Training. And the ED, the Enforcement Directorate, is under the Finance Ministry. Uh, there is very widespread sense now that the actual ministries don't really exercise control over them. Uh, now, it is true that the nature of Indian politics and political finance, which you've written about, is such that, you know, there are skeletons in almost every politician's cupboard. So it's not difficult to find them if you really target them. However, the fact that it's only on opposition parties or almost exclusively on them means that it is the selective nature right? That makes it so problematic. You know, one of the things we don't realize, as Amit was saying, for the CBI to operate in a state, it needs the the authorization of the state. And several states, opposition states, have withdrawn that authorization, which makes investigations, you know, 
there are lots of investigations that need the cooperation across the country. And over time, if this cooperation, as Amit said, becomes, you know, becomes weakened, that definitely undermines, you know, internal security. So I want to bring this conversation to the question of the police, which is one actor that we haven't talked about yet. Uh, and, you know, you note in your chapter that in, in any country, you know, the bedrock of internal security are the civilian police. In India's case, this foundation is the Achilles heel of, of India's internal security, right? And, and so it seems to me that there's a kind of catch-22 here, and, and you talk about this explicitly. On the one hand, the police are corrupt. Uh, they're viewed as brutal. Uh, they they suffer from from ineptitude. At the same time, we know they're understaffed. They're under-resourced. They have poor working conditions. They don't have adequate training. Uh, they often don't have regular days off. Uh, so, the best, I guess, the question is, you know, are are the police essentially trapped in an impossible situation? You know, the the, the, the definition of a kind of suboptimal equilibrium where um, they don't perform in the way that that we would like. But they also don't have the facilitating conditions present to perform, you know, even if they were sort of, uh, you know, up to the job. No, I, I think maybe <laughs> I was thinking of a term to describe this, what one might call a strategic incompetence, you know. And Milan, what is interesting is you see reports at the state level, central level, about the police right from the late 50s, early 60s, saying exactly what you've said. Every decade major commission, if you look at the National Police Commission report, which is an extraordinary report, I forget if it runs into eight or 10 volumes, you know, done in the late 70s in the aftermath, it was the Janta government in the aftermath of the excesses of the police in the emergency that set it up. It looked at every aspect, and it's an amazing report, you know. And after that, there have been multiple other reports, you know, every decade, two, three reports saying exactly this. And for more than six decades, every political party has been part of these reports. If you look at the Administrative Reforms Commission, the first in 68, the second in whatever, 2003, 4 everyone saying the same thing. Nothing happens. Nothing has happened. Uh, and I think it is one of the most extraordinarily low-level equilibriums. I mean, the, the, the pay scales, the manner in which the police are treated by many of the politicians as their personal bodyguards, uh, the police in India were brutal to begin with under the British because it was really about order. They didn't care about how. But the fact that that has continued, right, uh, for so long, I think is a real indictment, frankly, on India's political class. Every party, and I want to emphasize, every party has been party like this. Uh, and it is a deep betrayal of India's people because, and as you know, it's the poor, it's the marginalized who face this the most. They are the ones who are shaken down. They are the ones who get, you know, brutalized. 
And it's not just the police because the courts also, you know, we know about the encounter killings as the ones that happened last week. Because the courts, you know, take decades to do anything about a mafia dawn. And there's, you know, one of the things is the only people who get exercised over and encounter killings is a tiny section of the intellectual class. Everyone else is thrilled and happy because they see this deep unfairness built into the system where the very people who are supposed to sort of guard these citizens, which is the political class, are very much engaged and deeply embedded. They are parts of, of the mafia themselves. There has been a pretty raucous debate about the use of so-called encounter killings, right? And we've seen a spate of them in the state of UP involving the mafia politician Atik Ahmed and his family uh, play out. Uh, the UP state government, far from shying away from this form of criminal enforcement, has openly celebrated these killings. And, and, and you know, as the best points out, UP is not alone, right? I mean, th- this, is, this is kind of standard fare. Tell us a little bit about how we should understand the high degree of public acceptability, or at the very least, if you don't want to say acceptability, indifference to this kind of extrajudicial violence. No, I think that's a that's a really big question, and actually, you know, uh, the person who should, you know who's best positioned to answer that, Milan, is you because you've actually looked at this in great detail in your book. Um, in terms of, you know, the rise of, of criminal politicians, for example. And, and you know, the fact is that these uh, these criminal politicians are, are widely accepted and popular. But, you know, the, the larger point about your, you know, that observation is correct, that when it comes to encounter killings, when it comes to identity-related violence, assassinations, um you know, there is a lot of public and social acceptability of the, of that violence. And why is that there? You know, why, why don't we think about these things differently, especially at a moment, um, you know, when violence has, has fallen uh, in Indian society? You know, if those, if those indicators are pointing towards that picture uh, of, 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 of falling violence and, and relative peace, then, you know, having this particular this high level of acceptability is is deeply troubling and and you know so in in some of these tevish points to and i want to sort of come back to to you know the work that that you've you've done that you know these for example criminal politicians win elections they are they are popular they are uh, you know among their voters uh, in fact uh, criminal politicians have a higher likelihood so you know a candidate who has a criminal record has a higher likelihood to get elected than one who does not but the fact is that if you get to elected to office um the crime and that image is not washed away you don't go from being a criminal politician to a saintly politician and and what this is, you know what the killing of atik ahmed then uh you know shows us actually is exactly that that you know sure they may get elected because of their uh, as because of their popularity but their killing isn't unpopular either uh you know we did not see too many protests uh after after such killings and encounter killings have happened in past in the past by the police again well received so you know th- these are these are things that that we need to sort of ask but i think from again I, you know coming back to the police force and the state machinery 
you know we need to get into this 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 important aspect of what does this mean for the police you know here here is a police force that brings these two people um you know to to the hospital for a med- regular medical checkup and on on television cameras you know in broad daylight two people in their custody you know who have actually pointed to the courts that look their lives are threatened are bumped off um what does this mean for the police what does it say about their competence and a lot of police officers have actually have have you know lamented this i mean this is something that they worry about because this again it had raises questions about the training the credibility of the police uh, what you know what do they stand for uh, when they are not able to protect criminals who are in their custody and then there is a larger question that devesh alluded to that comes out of this conversation you know why do these cases you know languish in courts for for decades why do such individuals get political patronage over a period of time you know i'm reminded for example of a you know when i was doing my field work in in bundelkhand uh, you know in in the 2000s uh, there was a decoit called dadua and you know during the up elections the slogan went around uh, you know vote to hathi pe nahi to goli khao chhati pe which basically translates into you know vote for the elephant which was a symbol of the bsp uh, or or take a bullet on your chest uh, and you know so this uh, you know so this, these kind of relationships that have existed uh, between criminals and, and and politicians you know you know we need to sort of ask questions about those also uh, when we when we think about the effect, the effectiveness of the police and in 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 this issue of of managing violence and 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 just dealing with with criminals and criminal politicians the uh, devesh i, I want to just ask you one thing because uh, this is something that you have talked about uh, and i remember you and i having a conversation about this a long time ago private security forces i was stunned to see some of the numbers in your book they are the 11th largest sector in india by employment private security forces the ratio of private to public security providers is 5 to 1 um how do you understand the surge in private security forces right i mean is this just a factor of you know economic growth and there's a greater there's a greater demand for you know people living in gated communities for shops to have protection inadequate police you know and are there any downside consequences to this so milan yeah i mean uh, i mean in some ways i think where on sort of day to day security right which is the what the police are supposed to provide when there's a perception that uh that is weak or limited you know then people will find other ways right one of the reasons that these dons these mafia dons rose and you know as as you point as you very nicely showed in your book was they also provided protection to marginalized c- c- communities and i think so so one of the things is that in these the private security is less about preventing or checking violence 
it's more about things like theft and robberies uh and you know harassment uh uh say in a in a mall or as you said a gated community in some cases you know which is the ubiquitous chokidar right uh it is because you know it's a status symbol as well in other cases for instance the large increase in atm machines that occurred right over the past 20 years so what happened was atm machines you needed to of course replenish their cash so you got these specialized uh, uh firms that transport these large amounts of cash right which are which are private from the rbi's uh, vaults to uh, these these atms so there's a variety of reasons i think drive i mean i think urbanization is surely driving part of it because urbanization is leading to these housing colonies gated communities etc so the nature of urbanization the nature of urban policing or lack thereof all of these are playing sort of into this so uh, i want to kind of bring this conversation to a close by by asking you to reflect on 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 kind of what are the 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 broader questions that that this work raises and and you touch upon this at the end of the chapter you talk about the work of anthropologist thomas blom hansen right and and he has a book which argues that uh what's changed in india is that violence has moved from the periphery of indian politics and indian life to center stage and this on its face seems to fly uh, uh in the face of of all the data that you've produced which shows look violence of all kinds is is on the decline i'm wondering amit maybe i'll start with you you know how do we understand these conflicting assessments right violence is moving from the periphery to center stage but yet the numbers we have suggest that public violence is on the on the decline is there a way to sort of circle the square no so i think i think what is what is what is important to understand here is that you know the decline in violence um across indicators needs to be interpreted carefully uh, because it may not necessarily mean a decline in fear uh and the fear of violence and and you know so there is there is something to be said about things today circumstances today that may be perpetuating uh those the that that fear of violence there is also a memory of violence uh you know let's remember uh, that you know often times when major violent acts have happened in india um you know those are not actually dealt with in terms of a discussion reconciliation and so the memory of violence remains it remains with people it is and 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 it it you know it nurtures resentment over a period of time so you know the, some of these things we we need to we need to consider and and the fact of the matter is that when it comes to uh, you know people's daily lives uh, you know whether it's uh, you know related to caste or gender or just uh, you know just getting on with their daily lives people still live with a fair amount of fear and we know that uh, when we think about you know people going to work or you know especially when you think about participation gender participation in the workforce uh we you know that's a concern that security and safety is a concern for women 
I think uh, one is to take on Amit's thing about memory. Uh, I think last week a court set free, I think there were these major riots in Meerut in 1983, 82 or 83, where the PSC, the Provincial Armed Constabulary of UP, was, was, was clearly involved in the killings of you know Muslims, it took four decades for those trials. Four decades, and the outcome was that no one was found guilty. Right now, when more than hundred people are killed and no one is found guilty, and it takes you four decades, there is something pretty seriously wrong. Uh, I think. I think part of the reason of squaring the circle of Thomas Blomanson, I don't, you know, I think the idea that violence was in the periphery, I don't frankly agree with that. Meaning, if you look at one thing, caste violence, right? I mean, the 50s, if you were a Dalit, I mean, surely violence was not on the periphery like for you. It's the gradual empowerment of Dalits through the political process that in rural India, it's just not that easy to engage in violence against Dalits in the way you could, the upper caste could so easily do it 60 years ago. I mean, that I think is a fundamental change. The other reason why I think we see it more in the public is that social media has a massive megaphone of effect, right? Because everyone, you know, Previously, a lot of these discussions about violence would occur in private spaces, right? People talking in a tea shop, it's confined there and would use abusive language, but it stays there. Now the abusive language comes out in social media, goes viral, and everyone thinks, wow, so much violence. I think, I do think that one the manner in which social media has been weaponized in this sense is, you know, and what are the answers, how to address it? I mean, it's not unique to India, but it's definitely one reason why the publicness of violence appears to have increased, even though seemingly that the data is showing that it's going the other way. Yeah. And, and Milan, if I may just very quickly add to that, you know, just uh, the the idea of, of violence being on the periphery. I mean, you know, we have chapters, really nice chapters on the legal infrastructure in India. And that legal infrastructure clearly uh, stands with the state and has a strong preference for order. Uh, and national sec- or when it comes to issues of national security, every time the governments have made that case, the courts have sided with the government. And that, you know, that particular view, uh, judicial view, is very much a product of issues of violence and order being not at the periphery, but actually at the center, uh, you know, even as early as when the constitutional debates were, were happening. Because that's the moment when, you know, India is coming apart. The partition violence and the number of people who are killed, the displacement, 
that has left a very deep impression on the Indian state at a founding moment. Uh, so in that sense, you know, it's never been uh, at the periphery. And then, you know, if you go to insurgency-hit states, uh, no one there will argue that violence has been at the at the periphery. You know, one of the things about ruling elites is even if they don't act, they must be seen to act in not condoning violence, right? In being, in at least stating that they are horrified by violence, or right, even if, as as we discuss in our book, you know, their actions are way more feeble than their words. But when you don't even use words, right, then it almost gives a tacit acceptance of certain practices. And that, I think, is extremely worrisome. My guests on the show this week are the political scientists Amit Ahuja and Devesh Kapoor. Together, they have edited a new book, Internal Security in India, Violence, Order, and the State. The book covers topics ranging from the public finances of internal security to the military's role to the role of the central armed police forces, riots, uh, includes contributors like Srinath Raghavan, Akshay Mangla, Sahana Ghosh, Paul Stanland. It's really a kind of who's who of the India security set. Devesh and Amit, thank you so much for this book and thanks for taking the time to talk to me about it. Thanks, Milan. Thank you so much for having us on your show, Milan. Grant Tabasha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in the Hindustan Times. This podcast is an HT Smartcast original and is available on htsmartcast.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we reference on this week's episode, visit our website, grantthamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Nithya Lab. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Isabel Villegas is our executive producer. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production, brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.